This is Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It's February 26th. It's a new podcast, and there's a handful of things I want to talk about this week, but the most exciting part is that I'm strongly considering doing two musical interludes today. Honestly, I really do enjoy the music part of the podcast more than anything else at this point. Because of that, of course, I'm going to ruin it by uh, doing more and more of it. Now, next week's podcast, just to give you the update, because this is the kind of stuff that's important to me, not what's going on in the world anymore. I'm strongly considering revealing my favorite Rolling Stone songs. And these are not your father's favorite Rolling Stone songs, two of the songs, two of their songs. But today I'm strongly considering having two musical interludes. And I got a lot of negative feedback on that BG song. Some people considered suicide. So it'll be a little more, a little less depressing today. Regardless, we're going to talk about an update in that assisted suicide case that I had in Kingston, New York. There's kind of a shocking event that occurred. We're going to talk about Donald Trump's first criminal trial, which is starting in Manhattan in about a month, March 25th. We're going to talk about Joe Biden's foreign policy, which is now being controlled by Hamas. I shit you not. And that should make you all very comforted. To start, I guess we should talk about the Trump $454 million judgment that he was hit with Uh, late last week in a civil fraud case in New York. Uh, This is such a massive amount of money that even Trump will be unable to wring this amount of money out of his idiot supporters. He had a GoFundMe, I think, that made uh, almost a million or so. For some reason, his supporters feel that they, people that don't have a lot of money, should pay the bills for a billionaire. I'll never really understand that, but it is what it is. If it's not bad enough that most of the money that he's raising for the campaign, he's using on legal bills, like 80, 90% of it or so. He's just taking money in uh, from regular people that support him and he's paying his lawyers. And when you consider that his lawyers haven't won anything, and one of them is Helena Baba, it's really kind of shocking that people are continuing to give. The uh, Republican National Committee has no money compared to the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. And what is Trump doing? Because he's desperate for money. He's pushing to get his idiot daughter-in-law, Lara Trump, who I don't think she's ever had a job in her life other than squeezing out a couple of babies. You know, that's a job. I want to be politically correct. I don't really think it's a job, but I'm just saying that because I don't want to upset anybody. Anyway, he's pushing her to be the head of the Republican National Committee. And one of the first things she said is that money that's raised for the RNC, which is also for all of Republican candidates, she said it can be used to pay for Trump's uh, legal bills. So this is what's happening. I mean, the, his, he's running for president simply to pay off his lawyers. I don't know at this point what more his supporters need to see. I can't help you if you can't figure it out. If you can't figure it out, you're just not a smart person. You're just Forrest Gump. As for the fraud from that judgment, the actual fraud, I agree that he was technically responsible for the fraud that was alleged in that case, Letitia James, uh, the AG of New York. And similarly, he committed a crime in the New York criminal case that's coming up. That was the one where the trial schedule is going to last six weeks. Six weeks it's going to last at the end of March. And his crime was that he disguised extortion payments to some women that he had slept with who had threatened to go public. I mean, he had sex with these women. It was completely consensual, but because they saw a payday, they threatened to go public. So he had to pay the money off. And that's all it was. He was a victim of an extortion. And because he didn't write in his QuickBooks payment to whores in the memo line, he's charged with a felony by this affirmative action uh, disaster of a district attorney, Alvin Bragg, who charged him for one reason only to hurt his chances in the election coming up. It's true. You can hate Trump and still be honest about what's happening to Trump. But, you know, these are all, the cases are all minor fraud cases at best, and they shouldn't have been brought, the civil one or the uh, criminal one. These are the kind of cases that prosecutors exercise discretion and they don't bring. Like when the special counsel didn't recommend bringing a criminal case against Joe Biden for holding on to and sharing classified documents when he was a private citizen. He was clearly guilty, as the special counsel said. And even though he was a Trump appointee, he said, look, you know, I'm using my discretion. I don't think there should be a criminal charge. That's what a prosecutor does. They, they behave like adults. But 
in the case of the of the four criminal charges against Trump in the giant civil fraud case, which he just lost, none of the frauds or crimes really needed to be brought against him. All of them, they're primarily done to harm him politically. It's true. You have to admit it, even if you, you know, a far leftist or if you hate Trump like me, it's just obvious. If the case that's being brought in Manhattan, this fraud case with regard to his record keeping, it never gets brought. It just never does. And if you think that it's not political and personal, just look what the New York Attorney General is tweeting every day with just one number is her tweet, the amount that Trump owes from the case. You know, she's not doing that with any other case. She's not like laughing at a defendant that she's suing or prosecuting in any other case. It shows how emotionally tied into getting Trump she is that it's just completely personal. And that's disgrace. Prosecutors shouldn't be doing things because they're personally interested. It should be because of justice. And, you know, the same thing with the, the Georgia case. It's, again, you've got this affirmative action slop prosecutor who is a complete wild animal uh, in her personal life, a complete imbecile, but they want to get Trump because they don't want Trump to get back in power. It's, it's just not right. And what it's doing, it's effective. The March trial, as I said, is scheduled to last six weeks, and he'll be required to be there every day, unlike the fraud case that just ended. He won't be able to campaign. And not that he'd be talking about any of the issues that matter to Americans anyway. Trump doesn't even care. All he does is complain about how unfairly he's been treated. But for real, the New York criminal case, as I said, is never brought against anyone but Trump. In 34 years of practice, I've never had a case like that brought against the client unless it was an extra charge on a much bigger case. As I said, in Atlanta, it's been shown that DA uh, Fanny, what you're talking about, Willis and her boyfriend, uh, Nathan Wade, who may actually be brain dead. I mean, he may actually be in a coma as he's a lawyer. I mean, because you just look at him and he, you can see the wheels slowly turning in his head. They're slowly grinding, very slowly. Can't get the words out. He's an imbecile. But somehow, uh, Fanny Wade picked him and overpaid him to prosecute Trump in a RICO case. And he's never, I think he's a slip and fall lawyer. And of course, uh, both he and uh, Fanny, what you're talking about, Willis committed perjury on the stand. The defense lawyers for Trump and other lawyers subpoenaed the cell site records to Wade, to Nathan Wade's phone. And it showed that he had been visiting near her condo 35 times before uh, she hired him, a completely bizarre hiring, as I said, to handle, handle a major criminal prosecution. Now, cell site records that they put in, do not show exactly where your phone is, but it shows the nearest cell tower that your phone reaches in order to work. There are towers that are set up in, in tight urban areas. They're very close together because there's so many people that they serve in areas that are more desolate. Sometimes the, the towers are a mile or two apart. But where, uh, Fanny, what you're talking about, Willis lives, the towers are very close. And the ones that were getting pinged during that period when she claimed she didn't have a relationship with him were right by her condo. And some of the visits occurred at night and his phone remained there until the next morning. Clearly, he was visiting her. Clearly, they committed perjury because they tried to uh, explain to the judge that, no, this was any personal relationship we had. It was after I hired this imbecile jackass jawbone of an ass to be uh, the special prosecutor. Everybody knows that they lied on the stand. Uh, the cell site evidence has been accepted in criminal cases for decades. I first saw it in a RICO, a federal RICO murder case in New York in 1999. It's devastating proof as to where the person is because you have your phone with you all the time. But nothing will happen to Wade or Willis. Just You've got like these two moron lawyers, dishonest, incompetent liars, stealing money from the state to go on cruises and drinking Grey Goose I mean, getting those, you know, fancy uh, travel agents that, that Nathan Wade had, nothing's going to happen to them. It's bad enough that an affirmative action gives jobs to unqualified people like Wade, uh, like Willis, like Claudine Gay of Harvard, who uh, got her job, even though there were people that were much more qualified than her. But now we're going to use affirmative action to protect people from prosecution and disbarment, which is what should be happening in Georgia. And again, while I loathe Trump, it's not like he's been charged with selling secrets to the Russians. He's been charged with holding on to classified documents and paying off hookers. 
the D.C. case, the election interference case, they, they could have gone much harder with it and charged them with sedition, which is conspiring to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force the government of the United States or to oppose by force, here's the charge, oppose by force the authority of the government. Isn't that what he did, according to the Democrats on January 6th? That's what they claimed that he did. No, but they didn't dare charge him with it because it's a much more serious crime. It would have taken more of an effort to get him convicted. They just wanted to mess him up for the election. That's all this was about, clearly. And as I said, you can hate Trump, but you can also recognize that he's being treated unfairly by his political opponents. If you can't acknowledge it, you're just a political hack. It's true. And, you know, while I know that Trump is an imbecile and he's bad for the Republican Party, I'm starting to be convinced that we simply can't afford another four years of whatever leftist garbage the Democrats will run out for the November election. I don't think it's going to be Biden because I don't think he's going to live that long. I don't think he can he can handle it. But. My point is, I don't think that we can afford it, not just in America, but beyond America, globally. Because to the leftists, I'll say, while you're busy going after Trump, Joe Biden is destroying America. How many more millions of illegals do you want invading our country? Here's an interesting tidbit. There are more Chinese nationals coming into America illegally now than Mexicans. Does that seem right to you? China isn't exactly near our border, and Mexico is, you know, right at our southern border. Yet 21,000 Chinese nationals since October of last year compared to 18,000 Mexicans during the same period. There were only 323 Chinese that came over here illegally in 2021, 1,970 in 2022, over 24,000 in 2023, and there will be more in 2024. Tens of thousands of illegal Chinese are coming to America? It doesn't even make any sense. You know, do you really need to be told that these are spies? Do you really, can you not figure this out? This is what Joe Biden is purposely ignoring. China spent, sent spy balloon after spy balloon over America, and Biden didn't even tell us about it until it was spotted. He did nothing about it. He just let the Chinese spy balloons go over our, you know, sensitive military sites. You think China wasn't emboldened? All of a sudden, they're sending over 20,000 spies a year. No, there's not a problem. We're not going to pay for that at all in America. There are more illegals from Arab countries. I'm talking not like families. I'm talking single adult men. They've been caught in America more in the past year than in any year in the 99-year history of border control. So not only are we letting in spies, we're letting in Muslim terrorists. And they've caught Muslim terrorists and they've released them into America. I'm sure they're not a problem. If you think that Muslim terrorists running around America sent by our enemies isn't a problem, well, I'll tell you to look at Israel on October 7 when crazed Palestinian savages, thousands of them massacred, raped, tortured, and burned about 1,200 Israelis and took 240 hostage. We've let this filthy disease into our country, and now they're starting to impact our foreign policy. I mean, just look at the Hamas terror rallies that are a thing all over America. Iran's terror proxy has its supporters having hate rallies all over Joe Biden's America. You think that's not a problem? That Iran has people acting violently in our country and we're just ignoring it? You're an idiot if you dismiss this. A Japanese Yakuza leader, the Yakuza is the Japanese mafia, was just charged in federal court in New York with trying to sell 50 metric tons of uranium to be used by Iran to make nuclear bombs. You think Biden's appeasement of Iran and its proxies is a good policy? As for the terrorists and the spies and the criminals that Biden's let into our country, he has no concern because he wants them in our country so that they'll become Democrats and vote. You give free shit to these people, they're going to vote for you. And that's what Biden is all about. I mean, and, and he's not going to suffer for it. You will. I will. Case in point, a University of Georgia, or I think it was a different school near Georgia, a nursing student was murdered on the Georgia campus by an illegal from Venezuela who crossed over from Mexico into Texas 17 months ago. He managed to go to New York City to party and put up pictures of him in New York on his Facebook and TikTok accounts. He also got arrested in New York for endangering the welfare of a child, an illegal, a criminal. He was released released. 
<laughs> it's it, madness. He he wasn't kept in jail. He wasn't deported. He was released to kill an innocent college student in Georgia. This is where we are as a country. We're just letting in these unvetted maniacs from third world shitholes coming into America and allowing them to roam free. How could you go on if your daughter was killed by one of these animals who Joe Biden just cavalierly let in? Just because he wants more Democrats, uh, Democratic voters, and, and as I said, illegals receive that free shit, they're Democrats for life. And as we saw in New York, we're putting up the illegals for free in hotels where maids come in and clean every day. The hotels love it because the federal government is paying for the hotel rooms that would otherwise be empty. Who the hell is going to New York for vacation now? You want to go to vac- on your vacation and get ice picked to death? No. So they're giving them to the illegals. The hotels are thrilled. And then you got Mayor in the club, and he's giving out debit cards to the illegals, which will pay a family of four illegals fifteen grand a year, while we have tens of thousands of homeless veterans in America. So we're allowing killers into our country and paying them to stay. This is just like just genius policy. You think we can afford four more years of this? Okay, I'm getting a little bit exercised here. I'm getting a little frothy. So we're going to do a, a musical interlude. This is, this is why I need the musical interludes, because it, it soothes the savage breast. And that's me. In the first musical interlude, I'm just going to tell you, we're going to discuss two bands today. Both, when they were in their heyday, they sold no albums like zero albums, complete commercial flops, one from the mid-60s, one from the early 70s. Both bands are appreciated today as hugely important influences of, of not only their time, but even present time. One band, the Velvet Underground from the 60s, it is said that although they didn't sell many albums, everybody who bought one of their albums started their own band. The other band, I won't mention the name yet, but they put out songs, in my mind, early 70s, as good as anything Fleetwood Mac did during that era. And Fleetwood Mac actually came out after. They were putting out music in the early 70s and even uh, the late 60s, but they really didn't hit their commercial peak until uh, probably the mid to late 70s. I think this band was better than Fleetwood Mac, really, for, for real. And yet no one knows who they are unless you're really a huge music fan. Huge music fan. Regular music fans will not even know who this band is. I have personal tidbits about both of the people, the leaders of both of the bands, which actually, to me, makes this funny. It may, may not be funny to you. To me, it is. The Velvet Underground was led by Lou Reed, one of my all-time favorite musicians. <clears throat> if you can even call him a musician, he really... Bizarrely, I consider him more of a writer than a musician. He could barely sing, and he was not a good technical guitarist. If you listen, you if you listen to a great guitarist, you can hear the difference. But he was wildly inventive on the guitar and experimental in his playing. And as I said, his writing was really unsurpassed. And the sound that the Velvet Underground created was the newest sound perhaps ever heard at any time during rock history. Really. Their first album was called The Velvet Underground and Nico. Nico was a German model and singer who I actually named the dog after, who was put into the band by the Velvet's producer at the time, Andy Warhol, the artist. Everybody knows who Andy Warhol is. He actually uh, produced their first album. Completely bizarre pairing, and the album is just a, a shocking listening to the first few times you hear it. You've never heard anything like it before or after, in my estimation, and it's been 57 years since that first album came out. Again, I promise you, listen to The Velvet Underground and Nico, and you will not believe your ears. It's that fantastic. The music that Lou Reed wrote about was the ugly side of of life, drugs, sex, New York City, before New York City got cleaned up, not that it's so clean now. He was also like an icon of cool. I'm going to bring back a memory here. And it was odd to me because he was a Jewish kid from Long Island. Now, you remember the Honda, if you're a person of a certain age, the younger kids, I'll ask you to Google this, the Honda scooter commercial that Lou Reed did. Just gritty images of New York City in the song. The song that they played was Walk on the Wild Side, which was obviously his song. Suddenly, they they pan to Lou Reed. He's sitting on his Honda scooter with his sunglasses on, and uh, he takes them off and says, hey, don't settle for walking. And I'm telling you, it was a great commercial. Yeah, you really, Google it. 
Lou Reed Honda scooter commercial, the coolest commercial. You can find it on YouTube. And he was just an icon of cool. I began listening to the Velvets in, in high school after I already was a Lou Reed fan. And I learned, you know, you didn't have the internet back then. So it wasn't so easy to learn about music other than to just listen to it. You couldn't like go online and find everything out. You had to actually dig for yourself. And I was a Lou Reed fan and found out that he had led this band, the Velvet Underground. And when I started listening to their albums, it was like I opened Pandora's box. The music was so intense and insane and the hooks were just off the charts. And the sound, even in the 80s, the early 80s, when I began listening, was something I had never heard before. Again, I beg you, the Velvet Underground and Nico. I'm going to play a few seconds of two songs. The first is I'm Waiting for the Man is the name of the song. And it's a song about going uptown to Harlem, specifically Lexington and 125th Street in Manhattan, to meet a drug dealer. The guitar sound, to me, is completely unique. I don't know that I've ever heard it since then, it's almost like an inverted guitar sound. And Lou Reed's voice on this song is just perfect. Here's the first 45 seconds. Please, the state of Lou Reed, don't sue me. Here's the first 45 seconds of I'm Waiting for the Man. I mean, this is just an incredible song. It's just I- incredible. And it doesn't, I don't need to talk about it. You heard it. Listen to it, the whole thing. The second song on the same album I'm going to play is called There She Goes Again. And it's about a prostitute who is very proud of her job. And Lou Reed explains in the song, and I have to play it long enough, I'll probably get sued for it, but it is worth it for you to hear what Lou Reed feels needs to be done uh, to this prostitute. And what he needs really to do is what he's explaining is to calm her down. Here's the first 54 seconds of There She Goes Again. The idea that someone could write songs like this still shocks me. And these guys were the first. The best song on the album, which I didn't play, is called Heroin. And it's really descriptive. It has the immortal lines, heroin, be the death of me. Heroin, it's my wife and it's my life. I didn't sing it. You need to listen to the song. It's that incredible. And listen to the beginning. That's sort of like a plunking Lou Reed guitar sound. That's him on his guitar. And John Cale, a member of the band from Wales, he plays an electric viola. It goes absolutely crazy in this song. Listen to the song Heroin on the Velvet Underground and Nico. The viola sort of gives a feeling of what uh, taking heroin must be like. Uh, it's just incredible. But listen to the whole album. The first song on the album is called Sunday Morning. It's completely counter to anything that I just played for you. It's just such a different sound. It's such a horribly perfect album. You'll see. You'll you'll thank me. You're going to thank me. You're going to listen to the album a couple of times, a few times, and you'll thank me. Now, when I was in college, I went to see Lou Reed play. 
he was he had a sort of a renaissance. He had this song "I Love You, Suzanne" that had come out that was a big hit, and I was such a fan. I waited for hours in New York City in line to get a front row general admission seat to see him play at the Ritz, which Ritz, which was an East Village music venue. I don't think it's open anymore. This was in the mid '80s. I was in the first row because I waited like six hours to get in, and I remember looking up at him, and he was wearing these black Reebok sneakers. Reebok sneakers. It was a thing back then. I got a pair the next day. I think I wore them once, really. But Lou Reed had them, and he was just so cool, I had to have them too. Later on, when I was in college, Lou was making an appearance at a record store um, a few blocks from my apartment, if you can believe it, a record store named Turtles, maybe a mile from my apartment. He was signing albums. The album was Mistrial, which came out in 1986 when I was a junior in college. I was 20 years old, and I waited in line to see Lou again. When I got to the front, I didn't want an autograph. He was signing stuff. I just wanted a picture with me and Lou. I didn't want anything else. He was sitting there um, wearing a leather jacket and his sunglasses, and I asked the kid behind me. I gave him the camera. Remember, this wasn't the phone where you can go click, click, click. These were actual pictures that needed to be developed. I stood next to him with his shit-eating grin on my face, wearing a white T-shirt and jeans with my Jersey gold chain on. Again, that was a thing. I was from New Jersey. I had a gold chain back then. I ran and got the, the film developed at one-hour moto photo, and then I had it enlarged. And I had that picture framed in my home for years, for years. I don't know where the picture is or the negative, but I know I never would have thrown it away. It's somewhere, but it's one of my prized possessions that, of course, uh, I've misplaced. Now, later on as a young lawyer, just a few years later, that was 1986. Now, maybe this is 1993, seven years later, he was giving a reading. As I said, he was a writer and he had a book coming out at a bookstore in uh, New York City was where he was giving the reading and signing books. Brentano's books on Fifth Avenue, which no longer exists because there's no more bookstores anymore because of Amazon. And it was like the coolest, giantest bookstore. This was January of 1993. I remember the Christmas uh, decorations were still up. The, the book was a selection of his lyrics entitled Between Thought and Expression. And I had him sign a book for me. And that I have, and I'm actually looking at it right now. I'm holding it. That I did not misplace. I would have rather misplaced that uh, than the picture of me and Lou. Now, a few years pass. This was January of 1993, and I'm working on a mafia carding case while I'm working with Jerry Shargell. The client tells us that he's got a paralegal named Roma Barron. True story. And he trusted her, and he, he said, I want her to work on the case with you because she's my trusted right hand. Now, I'm thinking, like, I really need a paralegal to work on this case. I'm the junior lawyer. I'm going to be doing all the work. But whatever, Roma comes into the office to meet with us, and I was dubious. But I remember two things about the case. First, I wrote and won a motion to suppress a seizure of like a football field-sized room of documents that the feds took. That was a huge really big deal to win a motion to suppress. Nobody in the case thought I was going to win. I'll, I'll, I won't name the lawyer who was older than me at the time who laughed at me and said, you have no chance to win. I won. And it was a, a huge victory in the case. And I think it led to him getting no jail time. The second thing that I remember from the case, and which was, was way more important than winning the motion to suppress, was that Roma Barron, when she came in to see Jerry and I, and I remember exactly where I was sitting. Jerry was behind his desk. Roma was uh, to the seat to the left, I was to the right, and she casually mentioned that she had been the producer for Lori Anderson, an American performance artist and musician of some note. She had like a, a minor hit, and she was quirky, and if you were into music, you knew who Lori Anderson was. She was like very intelligent, like a, a thinking person's musician artist, but I nearly fell off the chair when she said that. Why? Well, as I said, Lori Anderson had some good stuff, but more importantly, Lori Anderson was Lou Reed's live-in girlfriend. I'll never forget that moment. I immediately asked Roma if she knew Lou, and she said she did, and could she facilitate a meeting between me and Lou and Jerry? She said she could, and a few months later, I'm at a dinner in New York City at Fresco. It was the restaurant Fresco by Scotto, a great restaurant in New York, and it was Jerry, Lou Reed, Lori Anderson, and me, and it was like one of the best nights of my life. Lou had no idea, of course, that I knew every detail of his life. I read every book, every article. I knew everything about him growing up on Long Island to the present. I asked him a million questions. I didn't care 
to try to be cool because I was meeting a guy that was really a hero. And I was concerned that I was going to be disappointed because sometimes you meet somebody who you really respect from afar and you meet him and he's a complete jerk off. Lou Reed was not. He listened to every question. He never was exasperated. And I asked a lot of him, but all he wanted to talk about what it was, what it was like being a defense lawyer, what jail was like. And, and I wanted to say to him, Lou, I know you've been arrested, you know, for drugs in the past. I didn't say it. I was polite. And Lori, uh, his girlfriend was really bright and fun and interesting. She was just very smart and happy. And as I said, I asked him all these questions about his music, specific questions about songs. I had a whole bunch ready that I uh, committed to memory to ask him. And he had such patience, wasn't annoyed. And he had this reputation of being a crabby kind of guy, you know, kind of a morose, shy, not talkative guy. But he couldn't have been more different with me. And at one point he said, in his like laconic uh, voice, let's go to the bar. And uh, I went with him. I was in my early 30s, I suppose. And we sat at the bar and he whips out two cigars. And we smoked cigars. I smoked a cigar with Lou Reed. I don't smoke cigars. I don't smoke anything. I mean, not anymore. And he showed me how to tap the ash of the cigar into the ashtray. I mean, I couldn't have been cooler, couldn't have been, couldn't have been nicer, couldn't have been funnier. And I remember thinking back then, he's happy. That's why he's so nice now. He and Lori had this great give and take. You know, they were like brother and sister. They were that close. It was just nice for me to see it that the man who had so much trouble in his life, you can listen to the music and understand how he had found so much peace at this stage of his life. Now, my next uh, musical interlude, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to talk about it. I don't know that I'm going to get there if I don't have enough time, but I urinated next to the leader of that band. Stay tuned for that. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I'm back, and we discussed at the top of the podcast how Joe Biden is now changing our foreign policy to adhere to the demands of Hamas terror supporters in America. As anyone could have predicted, he's turned nearly fully on Israel now in its fight with uh, the terrorists in Gaza. Naturally, the Donald Trump of Israel, Bibi Netanyahu, is helping Biden to destroy Israel. To be clear, uh, Israel seems hell-bent on letting Hamas off the hook. It's simply impossible to me. And look, I said this. If you listen to my podcast, listen to them again on October 9th, right after the October 7 massacre, and then the next week or two. I said this, that Israel needs to change the status quo and simply obliterate Gaza. There are 60,000 residents of Israel by the northern border, by Lebanon, who still can't go back to their homes and won't be able to go back until at least the summer. Why? They're going to be out of their homes for nine months because Hezbollah, another Iranian terror proxy on the north, just started firing rockets into Israel after Hamas attacked Israel from the south, completely unprovoked. This is what is being allowed to happen. That's the status quo. Will we just deal with these terrorists? They're terrorists. They're never going to change. So we'll just have 60,000 people that need to live in hotels far from home. It's absolute madness that Iran and its proxies are allowing are being allowed to do this. It's just incredible to me that Netanyahu is playing the same game by letting the terrorists live. You'd think that the massacre on October 7 would have changed the status quo. Alas, it has not. And Bibi seems to want Hamas to survive. And I really do believe it's because he wants to be able to say there can never be a Palestinian state because Hamas is still in charge in Gaza and you can't have a state next to you that's run by Hamas. What I'll say is Bibi's going to be removed from power as soon as this war is over. His utter incompetence and arrogance and propping up of Hamas is what allowed October 7 to happen. But letting Hamas survive clearly will just cause another October 7 massacre and surely is going to embolden Hamas, Hamas in the future, Hezbollah in the north, and Iran. It's not like these Muslim terrorists actually care about their lives. They want to die killing Jews. I know it sounds crazy, but this is what they are. We've learned this uh, since 9-11. These are radical Islamic zombies, and only dead Jews can satisfy their bloodlust. They whine about their human shield children being killed uh, by Israeli bombs, but they have no problem strapping bombs onto their kids to kill Jews. 
The Palestinians in Gaza, they never blame Hamas for putting their kids in harm's way. Everything they say, it's not fair, they're massacring, it's a genocide. It's all designed just to harm Israel, to get Israel to be pulled off of Gaza. They don't care about their children. If they did, they would have had an uprising against Hamas. They still support Hamas, 75, 85%, even after October 7 and all the destruction of Gaza that Israel has done. It's, it's just incredible. And for Israel not to go into Hamas's last stronghold in Rafah, which is by the Egyptian border, and actually finish off Hamas is unforgivable and an insult to every Israeli soldier, every young kid who gave his life in this war. There should be a massacre of Hamas in Rafah and all over Gaza until Hamas is gone. Instead, Bibi dithered on purpose, I'm convinced, to allow Hamas to survive, allow him more time in office, uh, and also to appease Joe Biden. And if they do have the ceasefire, it looks like there's going to be one, it will surely allow Hamas to rearm through the tunnels that are under the border between Gaza and Egypt. That's where all the weapons came in. This is going to end up costing more Israeli lives. And if I was a parent of a kid that lost uh, their life in this war, I would be out of my mind insane. And with regard to a hostage deal, it's not out yet what it's going to be, at least by the time I recorded this. Israel will release more Palestinian killer maniacs from prison, and maybe even the next leader of Hamas, which is what they did in the last prisoner swap they had uh, with Hamas years ago. Uh, They release all of these killers for one soldier back then. It'll be some civilians now. Uh, This costs plenty of lives by letting these killers back uh, into Gaza. And the next swap will surely do the same. Hamas is still holding 134 Israeli hostages. And instead of just obliterating Gaza, he's negotiating, which is just incredible to me. And to negotiate when we're right at the end, you know, it's pretty telling. But as the way things are right now, if there is a ceasefire, Hamas is still in charge of, of Gaza. Hezbollah is still on Israel's border on the north, threatening to launch 150,000 rockets. And completely, they're unconcerned with Lebanon, which is barely a functioning state as it is. They're completely unconcerned with Lebanon being destroyed. And that's the thing. You can't destroy these places and feel like you're um, scaring them off for the future. There's no deterrence established because they're zombies. They just want to die to kill Jews. They don't value their lives. As I said, over 75% of Palestinians still support the Hamas massacre on October 7, and 60% support armed struggle, which means terrorism against Israel. They've lost their homes, they've lost their lives, and still their main concern is jihad. And Joe Biden had the balls to say on Twitter, quote, I won't mince words. The overwhelming majority of Palestinians are not Hamas, and Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. That's what he said. And it's just a fucking lie. He knows it's a lie. He knows full well. He sees the polls. He sees the actions. The overwhelming majority of Palestinians not only support Hamas, but they support what Hamas did on October 7. And, And Hamas clearly represents the Palestinians' people. They elected them 20 years ago. And they'd win in a landslide today. As I said, these are not people who want their own state with access to the, you know, to the sea and air. These are diseased savages, brainwashed in schools, brainwashed by their parents. Let's say Hamas was actually eliminated for argument's sake. All right? Let's just say they were gone. Let's say that then at the urging of the U.S. and Europe, the Palestinians will move towards their own state without Hamas. Well, First of all, it can't happen because they never agree on any deal that Israel offers. Israel offered them 97% of the land that they wanted. They turned it down. So there will never be a Palestinian state for that's one of the reasons. But let's say that by some miracle, the people in Gaza and the people in the West Bank, they were going to get their own state. First of all, they hate Jews in a poll at like 98%. They don't hate Israelis due to a political reason. They hate Jews because of religious hatred. And when they call for their own state uh, in these terror marches, they don't say that they want to live in Gaza City and and Rafah. They're calling for the land uh, between from the river to the sea, which is the Jordan River, which is on one side of Israel, to the Mediterranean Sea, which is on the other side of Israel. They fully expect to be taking all of Israel. 
They don't ever say we want our own state in a, in a Gaza city or in, you know, in Janine or Ramallah. No, no, they want it in Israel. That's what they say in every march. And you'll see that when the so-called ceasefire goes into effect, which I'm guessing it's going to be any day now, the Palestinian terrorists in the West Bank, the, the ceasefires in Gaza. So you'd think that they'd want peace and they'd want to move forward after the destruction of what's happened to the Palestinian people. They will continue their terror attacks in the West Bank against Israelis. They have no intention of ever abiding by a ceasefire, just as they didn't on October 7th when they committed the massacre. They don't want peace. They want blood. They want brains. They wish they could, could swim in Israeli blood. That's what they talk about. It's, they want blood. These are fucking lunatics. You can't uh, deal with them on a rational basis. And Joe Biden saying this, he's just saying it, pretending that these are rational people because he's appeasing to his Muslim voters in a swing state like Michigan who have said, if you don't pull Israel off of uh, our terrorists, we're not going to vote for you. You saw them celebrate on October 7. These are the people that he says are good people. They're kicking and spitting on the bodies of dead Israeli women. These are not humans. This is Palestinian. And not only, you know, it can't just be Gaza that's bad. The West Bank terrorists, as I said, they're constantly ramming people. The other day, a couple of terrorists during a traffic jam just took out guns and started shooting at Israelis that were commuting including a pregnant woman that was hit. They don't care. They're proud of this. This is good stuff for them to so suggest that these are people that anybody could work with. The Palestinian Authority, which is the so-called the good terrorists that Israel is supposed to work with as a partner for peace, they incentivize this terrorism in the West Bank. They run their pay-for-slave program, which pays $300 million a year from their budget to imprisoned and released terrorists and the families of dead terrorists. The longer the prison sentence that the terrorist gets, the more money they get. And the payments they make are not like bullshit money. It's money that's like exponentially larger than what the average Palestinian earns. So of course the maniacs in the West Bank want to kill Israelis. And these are the people that Biden claims are the chosen next leadership for the Palestinians. It just can't happen. But regardless of Biden's and Europe's choice of the Palestinian Authority to head a Palestinian state soon, they're doing all they can to ensure that Hamas survives by pushing for the ceasefire. So they want their own state, but they recognize they want their own state for the Palestinians, but they recognize that Hamas cannot be the leaders of the Palestinian people. Yet they're allowing Hamas to stay in power by not telling Israel to finish them off. It just doesn't make any sense. They're pressing Israel to stop the war, which will then cause Hamas to remain in charge. So how will the Palestinian Authority be the leaders of all the Palestinians when Hamas is in charge in Gaza? As I said, Hamas is wildly popular. The Palestinians hate the Palestinian Authority, mainly because the Palestinian Authority doesn't kill as many Jews as Hamas does. And when the Palestinian Authority tried to take over Gaza in 2005, Hamas kicked them out, threw them off buildings, you know, the, the usual Palestinian behavior. But even if a ceasefire in Gaza is reached, do you actually think that they're not going to break a ceasefire? You can't trust them. You couldn't trust them from October 7th. And I'll say this, did the zombies in Walking Dead, that show, did they ever stop eating brains? No, they always wanted those brains. So my point is, is even if the Palestinians get their own state, they won't stop trying to kill Israelis because they want all of Israel. They need to eat Jewish brains. And as soon as the first terror attack happens, if they get their own state, Israel is going to pound Gaza and the West Bank, and then we're going to be right back to where we started. Biden and the Europeans are just trying to placate the wild savages, Islamists that are in their countries that they let in, that we let in. It's not like Hamas is, is, is holding the Palestinian people hostage, like leftists try to stay say the palestinians they love hamas they celebrated the rape and murder of israelis with hamas on october 7 they joined in on the massacre <laughs> they don't deserve their own state they don't deserve anything we're being told that uh, they deserve to be protected at the expense of israeli soldiers that israeli soldiers need to be more careful and putting their lives at risk fuck that this is war 
And these are demonic terrorists who hate Jews and want to kill Israelis. Full stop. Period. That's it. They need to be de-radicalized as the Germans and the Japanese were after World War II. They're that crazy. Remember, the Japanese were suicide bombers as well, and the Germans were Nazis. So how can you realistically de-radicalize the Palestinians who are brainwashed religious fanatics? Answer, one answer. This is it. Overwhelming force. That's it. America dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. They killed 150,000 in the most horrific way. It was awful. The Japanese had refused to surrender, which would have required uh, possibly an American invasion into Japan. That would have cost a massive amount of American and Japanese lives. A few days after we dropped two bombs on Japan, they surrendered. And then the Allies occupied Japan from 1945 to 1952, de-radicalizing them through widespread military, uh, political, economic, and social reforms. The bombs worked. To get the Germans to finally surrender in World War II, the Allies firebombed Dresden, a large German city. Many civilians were killed, about 25,000. But it went a long way to convince the Germans to surrender. Again, this is war. Did we forget what war is? People trying to kill us, we're not here to have a proportional war where every side gets to be treated the same despite the difference in power. No. This war was in Israel was started by the Palestinians. This is not a game. Dresden, when the, the Allies bombed it in Germany, was not on America's border or England's border, and it still got bombed. To make a point, unlike Gaza, which is not only on Israel's border, but is where the October 7 massacre came from. Israel should treat Gaza like America treated Japan and Germany at the end of World War II. Destroy it until they surrender, and then occupy it until they become de-radicalized. Period. And Hamas could surrender anytime it wishes. You always hear about this pressure against Israel. Why is there no pressure against the Palestinians to either raise up, rise up against the Hamas and overthrow them, or against Hamas? I mean, they claim they care for the Palestinian civilians, Hamas, yet they don't let them hide in their terror tunnels for protection. That's only for them. They claim they care for the Palestinian civilians, yet they stole all their aid money to make these terror tunnels. They claim they care for the Palestinian civilians, yet they have one military tactic, hiding among the civilians and getting them killed so that the world will pull Israel off of Gaza, which is what's happening again right now. Hamas uses children as soldiers. Hamas drops bombs onto children. Hamas kills their own civilians if they dare to try to take aid supplies sent in by Israel. So Hamas doesn't care about the Palestinian people, because if they did, they would have surrendered by now. It's not like they're making any military gains in this war. They've lost nearly every battle, but they're smart enough to know that the Palestinian public largely won't blame them, because killing Jews is more important to the Palestinian public than their own children living happy, free lives. If not, if they actually cared more about their children, they would have overthrown Hamas. No, quite the opposite. They worship Hamas. There's no Arab Spring uprising in Gaza. So Biden threatens Israel, uh, pressures them to leave Gaza and leave Hamas intact, and to just wait for the next October 7 massacre. Biden doesn't hold the Muslim protesters in America, doesn't hold their feet to the fire at all. All he says is, uh, you know, all he has to say is, to the Muslims that are protesting, the, the uh, crazed Hamas terror supporters, why don't you ever call for Hamas to surrender instead of just Israel? Why don't you call for the hostages to be released? There are kids that were abducted. There were Americans that were killed and abducted. Why doesn't he ever challenge them? Because he's afraid to. He doesn't want to anger them. He knows they're violent savages, and he needs their votes. And as I said, in swing states like Michigan, which has a large amount of Muslim terror supporters as voters, because, of course, we let them in. Thank you, Barack Hussein Obama. All Biden has to say to Hamas is the following. Either you release the American hostages, or we will turn Israel loose in Rafah and kill all of you. Is that even a remotely controversial position to take? Americans are still there. Why does nobody give a fuck about the fact that Americans were killed in, in Israel and are being held hostage in Gaza? Americans don't care about that. We care more about what? About Gazan civilians that support Hamas? 
isn't America's president supposed to demand that these that these people are returned, these Americans are returned? And shouldn't he be demanding that Hamas pay for what they did? He's not even angry. He's only angry at Israel. He has his uh, staff leak out that he called uh, Netanyahu an asshole. What about Hamas? What about your friends in Hamas who killed Americans? You care about that at all? Why doesn't Biden say to Egypt, you turned a blind eye to the tunnels between Gaza and your country? That allowed terrorists to travel to Iran to be trained and come back again. That allowed massive weapons into Gaza, which they used on October 7 and the war that followed. You must now give the tunnels to Israel to police and destroy because you clearly are unwilling or unable to do so. If not, we are ending our relationship with you. We will no longer give you weapons. Get them from somebody else. He has no problem, Biden, blasting Egypt for purported civil rights issues, and he actually held back weapons uh, because of that. But Biden doesn't say a word to them about their part in the murder and kidnapping of Americans and Israelis? This doesn't make any sense. Why, instead of pressuring Israel to stop destroying Hamas, doesn't Biden say to Qatar, you provide billions to the Hamas terrorists, you give their leaders homes to live in, you train their killers, you use your Al Jazeera network to demonize Israel with your Hamas propaganda, either you arrest the Hamas leaders and send them to Israel or America for prosecution, or we will end this relationship. Your actions helped kill Americans. That's what he should be saying. But none of that. He, he says that there are allies and there are friends and they're helping. They're not helping. They trained Hamas and they paid Hamas. Only Israel gets the back of the hand, the only real ally that America has in the Middle East. Why? Because he knows that, uh, that Israelis are civilized, unlike the savages that he has to appease because he's afraid. But as I said, what this situation calls for is overwhelming force. When Hamas and their 80% supporters in Gaza have had enough, they will surrender. If not, they'll be destroyed. This is war. Once they surrender, they should be occupied until they can learn to be civilized. Until that time, a buffer needs to be put in place on the Gaza side of the border, which will prevent another October 7 massacre from happening. The losers started the war. They should pay with land, give it to the victor. That's how it works in war. If the situation remains radicalized, Gazans need to be forcibly resettled. They need to be removed and sent to some other Islamist shithole to live in. Or they can go to Ireland, as they seem to love Palestinian terrorists so much. Turkey loves them. Send them there. Egypt loves them. Send them there. Qatar loves them. They let the leaders stay there. Send a million Palestinians from Gaza there. Send them to Saudi Arabia. They have plenty of room. The Gazans who live in Gaza now, they haven't been there a thousand years. Many are grandkids of refugees who were moved into Gaza. They can leave now. It's not like this is their ancestral homeland. In fact, the father of the Palestinian people, Yasser Arafat, was an Egyptian. They are violent extremists. They are losing a war. They can be moved out. Why can't Palestinians lose a war? Are they the only people who are not allowed to lose a war? A war that they started? Do you know how many millions of people have been resettled after being on the losing side of wars in, in, in Europe and Africa and the Middle East or just been kicked out? Gazans can leave too. They're bad neighbors. They're terrorists. They're dangerous killers. They should be forcibly resettled if they cannot be civilized. When Armenia lost a brief war with Azerbaijan last year, 100,000 Armenians picked up and left their homes. Do you even know that? No one knows that because no one gives a fuck because it can't be blamed on Jews. Gazans can as well especially since they refuse to change their ways. They refuse to stop trying to kill Israelis. 850,000 Jews had to resettle into Israel after getting kicked out of Muslim and Arab lands. Palestinians can go as well. Qatar spent $220 billion on preparing for the World Cup. They have plenty of money to spend on resettling Palestinians, as does Saudi Arabia, which spent $6 billion just on sports deals in the last couple of years. They've got plenty of money to spend on Palestinians. But of course, here's the, the, the rub. No Muslim country wants the Palestinians because they're not good guests. They tend to murder their hosts. But that's for another day. Bottom line, the continued appeasement and coddling of Palestinian terrorists is destroying not just the Middle East, but the West as well. 
Just look at what's going on. You got Hamas terror rallies every day in Europe and in America. They're violent that every one of these are calling for the murder of Jews, destroying property. You've got another Iranian proxy bombing American ships, British ships in the Red Sea where all of these goods that are being moved through that area are now being gummed up because of the Iranian terrorists. And the Iranian terrorists are screaming, how dare you bomb us back? You're ratcheting this up. Everything is started. This is what the Muslim terrorist does. They commit a heinous act, and then they say, we're victims. You need to stop. It's unfair. It's disproportional. This is what they do. Idiots like Joe Biden and the Democratic Party, they fall for this shit every single time. And if you're a Jew and you still vote for this, Seriously, I want to. I just. I want to kill you. I do. I'm sorry, but that's how I feel because to me, you are part. You're an enemy. You're not a friend. You're not a brother. You're sleeping with the enemy. You've got these these Hamas terrorists all over America, all over college campus. They claim that they're peaceful. Why? Because no one died. They're calling for the murder of everyone in Israel. I have to tell you. You know, this is the epitome of violence when you call for the genocide of Israelis. In England, the savages are threatening members of parliament if they dare support Israel against Palestinian terror groups. Some of the members of the parliament in in England are refusing to continue in office because they don't want to be killed. They're projecting genocidal statements onto Big Ben. In New York City, a couple miles from Ground Zero, where Muslim terrorists killed 3,000 Americans, Hamas terror rallies are taking place, calling for the murder and destruction of America and Israel. Joe Biden is begging for the Muslims to vote for him to the point that he's apologizing to them through his aides for supporting Israel after October 7. What was Israel supposed to do? Not destroy Hamas? This has been a war that's lasted four and a half months. How many friggin' years were we in Iraq? For no reason at all. How many years were we in Afghanistan? Decades? But Israel can't go four months without killing uh, the very people that massacred 1,200 of their people and still holds them hostages? Are you serious? Come on. Israel should destroy Gaza until they wave the right flag. That's it. That's how war works. If Gaza needs to be destroyed to end the threat on Israel's border, So be it. Sorry, Gazans. This will teach you for the future the way it taught the Germans and the Japanese. You cannot be maniacs. You can't be killing people. That Israeli soldiers are dying because Israel is being careful to avoid civilians dying is just mind-boggling. I mean, we didn't worry about civilians in Japan and Dresden, did we? And it was the right decision then as it would be now. If Israel simply ended the Palestinian threat once and for all, there might be some peace. And really, that's, that's Iran as well. Now, I'm going to go to my second musical interlude quickly. Um, the band is Big Star. It was from the early 70s. You don't, you don't, you've never heard of Big Star. Few of you have. Few of you have. Big Star was a, a handful of American kids headed by Alex Chilton from Memphis. But you don't know Alex Chilton. I just said the name. It means nothing to you. You don't know the, the band Big Star. But here's something about Alex Chilton that you may know, but didn't know that you know. Do you remember the song, The Letter, by the Box Tops in the late 60s? It was a huge hit. Alex Chilton was the lead vocalist on that song. He was 16 years old. Here's the first 16 seconds of The Letter by the Box Tops. Give me a ticket for an aeroplane. Ain't got time to take a fast train Lonely days are gone, I'm a-going home My baby just wrote me a letter Little did Alex Chilton know he would reach his commercial peak at age 16. A few years later, he formed Big Star and they made their first album, which is an extraordinary record, except the record company didn't push it at all and it was a commercial disaster. They tongue-in-cheek named the album Number One Record and it was a, a, a big critical success, but because Stax Records, Big Star's record label, didn't promote or distribute the record in any competent way, it flopped. One of the songs on the album was In the Street. It's the song that played at the beginning of that 70s show. If you know that show, it was very popular a few years ago. That was a big star song, an Alex Chilton song that uh, led off that show. Their second album, entitled Radio City, was brilliant as well and received huge critical praise. 
But the record company, again, didn't promote it at all. Remember, this was before the internet, before YouTube, before TikTok. All you had was radio. Here's one of the songs off of Radio City, perhaps a top five greatest love song of all time. It's called I'm in Love with a Girl, and I'm going to play you the first 27 seconds. And listen to Alex Chilton's voice in this compared to the letter when he was with the box tops. Mr. Producer, play that song. Despite massive disappointment in the band breaking up due to zero commercial success, they actually recorded a third album, and they didn't release it at the time. The band broke up, they went their separate ways, and a few years later, the public suddenly discovered Big Star, and their first two albums were re-released. A bit later, four years after it was recorded, Big Star's third album was released, and it was entitled Third Slash Sister Lovers, because Alex Chilton and another bandmate were dating sisters at the time. And this album was extraordinary, completely different than the first two. It was basically an Alex Chilton solo album, but with some of the remaining members of the band who, who recorded it with them. I'm going to play two songs from this album, parts of it. And I beg of you to go to Apple Music and Spotify and find these songs. But I want you to listen to the demo versions of them. The uh, title of the album it's Big Star's album, and the title of the album that you can find on Spotify and Apple Music is Complete Third. That's the third album. On that album, at the beginning, are the demo versions of the songs which ultimately were released. The first one I want to play is called Jesus Christ. Really, for real. This is just pure perfection. Listen to this. It's perfect. The first 52 seconds, Mr. Producer, play the first 52 seconds of Jesus Christ. From the realms of glory The star shone bright above And royal David city Was bathed in light of love Ooh, Jesus Christ was born Jesus Christ was born Jesus Christ was born today The song that follows that on the complete third is the demo version of Blue Moon, perhaps the greatest love song of all time. I checked out Billboard's top 50 love songs of all time, and number one is Endless Love by Lionel Richie and Diana Ross, which is utter garbage, a slop. Blue Moon, the demo version, is only a million times better. Listen to this, and I beg of you, please find it and listen to the complete song. Here's the first 50 seconds of the Blue Moon demo. Mr. Producer, press that button. the time to show your mind and I'll be a blue moon in the dark while you sleep you'll see me there clouds race across the sky close your eyes there's really not much to say after that song 
The last thing I want to talk about is an update on my Kingston, New York assisted suicide case. I discussed this case recently on a podcast. My 85-year-old former doctor from Arizona was accused of assisting in the suicide of a Kingston, New York woman who had been suffering uh, from severe pain for years, and she decided to end her life. She contacted an organization my client was a part of, a death with dignity organization, and he counseled her for months. And when she decided she wanted to end her life instead of the suffering that she was going through for the remainder of her life, he flew to New York and was present with her when she died. He was facing mandatory jail time if he was convicted, which for an 85-year-old guy with significant health problems would surely have been a death sentence. That was clear. The evidence against him was that he was seen on video at the hotel carrying an, a nitrogen tank into the hotel for her, and nitrogen was going to be used by the woman to end her life. In addition, when questioned by detectives, my client admitted to having left the hotel and buying a wrench for her in order to help her tighten the mask around her head where the nitrogen would flow into. Minor things, but certainly arguably within the statute, which makes it illegal if a person, quote, intentionally causes or aids another person to attempt suicide. Despite the fact that the doctor was arrested in Arizona and released on bail and voluntarily flew to Kingston for the first appearance and bail hearing, the prosecutors insisted upon seeking his detention, which means no bail. He would have been required to stay in jail until the trial, which could have been a year, could have been two years. And to me, this was horrifying because it surely would have been a death sentence and he wasn't even sentenced. It would just have been denying his bail motion. A sickly 85-year-old man is not lasting two months in jail, let alone a year. And I obviously felt some pressure at the bail hearing as the stakes were very high, as I mentioned on that podcast. But to not sound like a jerk, the bail hearing was really a bloodbath, mainly because I thought the facts were on our side and we got a bail for Dr. Miller. He was shaken up at the prospect of losing the bail hearing, and I was frankly pissed that the prosecutor wouldn't consent to bail because, as I said, after all, he flew to, uh, to New York voluntarily for that appearance. If he was going to run, he would have run before he flew to New York. Anyway, he returned to Arizona, and a few days later, the prosecutor, after trying to keep him in jail until he died, offered him a deal which would include no jail time. So just a few days, as I said, after trying to put him in prison till he died, they offered him a no-jail disposition, which I consider a pretty amazing turnaround. And what I'll say is that sometimes this work is very dramatic, very highs, very low, sometimes on the same day. And this was one of those cases. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Thank you for tolerating me for this last hour or so. You can find me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. See you next week.